This is the Pennyworth Podcast on TV Podcast Industries, and we're talking about Pennyworth. Episode 7, Julie Christie. If she is indeed okay, you have my apologies for coming in hot, so to speak. Apology, my ass. I'm missing three days of my life thanks to whatever it is you slipped into my drink. Three days? Dear me. Hmm. I can assure you, Martha, I slipped nothing into your drink. Perhaps the police can find out. Martha, I'm sorry you didn't have a good time. I haven't the foggiest notion what happened to you. I'm afraid I wasn't paying attention. It was a good party. And I rather took you for an adult. As for the police, call them by all means. The chief inspector is a dear friend. He'll tell you I'm a good egg. A good egg. Martha, let's not make a federal case of this. If Patricia is okay, there's no need to involve the police. I'll be the judge of that. Where's the crime here? Sin we have in joyful abundance, but crime, no. Welcome back, Governors. We're back in DC's Batverse with our Pennyworth podcast about the seventh episode of Pennyworth, Julie Christie. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. Hi there, Governors. I am one of your other hosts, John. Yes, we are in the dark dimension of the Batverse. (laughs) The devil, Beelzebub, or Jason Ripper, no matter what you call them, evil lurks the land. Yeah, back after a week's break for the Labor Day break that they had on Epics for episode seven. So, uh, so one week extra we have. Uh, I think it was allowing a lot of people who've subscribed to the channel to watch uh, Pennyworth. They've allowed them to catch up. They did a little uh, marathon of six episodes last weekend. So catching up this week, uh, we're recording a little bit in advance. So right now we're not actually sure if it's airing two episodes back to back on, uh, on Pennyworth tonight on epics um but we think it's only just the one episode episode seven and if there is a second episode of course we will record our thoughts about episode eight and we'll release them uh, later on in the week this one is just about episode seven no spoilers for episode eight of course this episode is called julie christie once again we've had a little bit of a failure of what the actual episode names have to do with the episodes themselves but we do know julie christie is a massive massively famous actress from the 60s a big swinging 60s icon uh, like many of the other uh, actresses and singers that have been chosen for the other episodes absolutely and I think at the moment that is what is defining this is that, look, Pennyworth is set in the 60s, 30 degrees removed kind of thing. So it could mm-hmm. be with a mobile phone or it could be with Victorian era sort of justice practices like the stocks or mm-hmm. all the swinging baskets of doom. Um, <laughs> but certainly, yes, Julie Christie, probably best known for um, Dr. Shivago. She was in that, but she has also um, recently been in uh, The Prisoner of Azkaban as well with Harry Potter. So, you know, she is still, or she has still been uh, involved in the movies industry. So, you know, she had certainly a lot of accolades from uh, getting an Academy Award to a BAFTA Award, Screen Actors Guild, mm-hmm. you name it. Um, she was uh, pretty... Uh, well known uh, in the 60s when she was uh, acting in some of those iconic 60s movies. Yes, and we think that's roughly what the connection is here, uh, chosen by Bruno Heller uh, for all of the titles for these episodes. Um, Thanks so much for joining us after the little break that we've had for the week, as we've said. Uh, Great to have you back. We are once again starting out our podcast with our Royal Mail section, our feedback section for Pennyworth. 
be a love. Put stamps on them. Put them in a letterbox for me. You know I can't do that. You can. Our first piece of feedback is an email in from the composer of Pennyworth, uh, David Russo. He says, Dear John and Derek, I am the composer for both Pennyworth and Gotham. Count me among the ranks of the devoted listeners. I've long enjoyed the insight, humour and passion of your podcast. And although I watch these episodes over and over during the course of the season, I'm always surprised by the numerous things that I miss. You two always reveal something about each episode that completely escaped my notice. Sadly, I can't shed any light on the question regarding the naming of the episodes. Bruno writes from a mysteriously undisclosed location. What I find much more unsettling, however, is that the pilot episode is merely named pilot keep up the good work best david russo thanks so much david that's really nice of you to say yeah thank you david uh for the comments yeah it is interesting that the the first episode uh, is just called pilot mm-hmm. maybe it's kind of well in just in case it doesn't get picked up i'm not going to waste time uh thinking up a title for the episode mm-hmm. uh, because certainly it feels like there's a lot of thought put behind the others with julie christie silla black at least you know linking it to that 60s thing Mm -hmm. and so yeah thanks for getting in touch and a great great pennyworth uh theme tune here um i have to say i do hum it quite a lot he really does a lot and it's been great i think we saw the first episode back in may um and at the time i think we saw that first episode and that theme tune was just playing over and over and ahead and has been ever since you know four months on still singing it really enjoy it um I did look it up, and yes, the first episode of Gotham, also written by Bruno Heller and directed by Danny Cannon, was also called Pilot. So, um, so I think this just might be a, a little flair that he has when he's writing the first episode of his shows. He just calls them Pilot, and then when he gets into writing the rest of the episodes, he has something in the back of his head that's coming up with these iconic names for each of the episode. As I said, I think it's just specifically these ones seem to be about 60s iconic heroines uh, for most of the rest of the episodes, but we'll see if there's anything else, uh, anyone else that might be able to shed some light as we go on. Uh, I'd love to talk to David about, uh, about where he came up with the Pennyworth theme tune because it's really, it's a really interesting theme. Was there stuff influencing his, uh, his choices for that? Was, was it something like the iconic shows of the sixties, things like, you know, uh, Mission Impossible and Man from Uncle, Man from kind Uncle, of that kind of stuff, yeah, you know, yeah. because there's definitely little touches in there, but obviously working on Gotham as well with Bruno Heller and, and uh, Danny Cannon over the years, you know, he has some insight in, into how the mindset of them as writers is and how, how they work. So uh, if you'd be interested in popping onto the podcast uh, when we finish up these 10 episodes, I think we'd like to get a couple of interviews with uh, some of the cast and people behind the scenes. It'd be kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. That would be great. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for the feedback, uh, David. It's really good to hear from you and to know that you are one of those on board with the podcast. Yeah. Our fellow governors. Um, yeah. Exactly. Remember, you can contact us at feedback at TV podcast industries. Dot com. We also have some feedback through for on our Facebook group as well from Roger Sprung. Roger goes, I just finished listening to your podcast on episode six. When I first saw Lord Harwood, he was about as far from being a sympathetic character as could be possible. But now I find him a very sympathetic character. I never thought that would happen. Excellent writing and storyline concerning Harwood. Mm-hmm. I also agree that the fake nose he's wearing now must be much simpler and cheaper for the production. Uh-huh. Definitely. <laughs> However, I was very disappointed in Martha. She agreed to go to that party rather easily, it seems. I know she would have no idea what the party would be like, but she should have kept an eye on Patricia in her apartment. Did she go just in to spite Thomas, or did she have little choice because it would have been hard to keep Patricia in the apartment? It's interesting. I think Patricia is very much a party girl. Mm -hmm. It could even be that she was sent in 
um, by, uh, that, those party goers to kind of lure Martha out, I think, as we're going to get into this episode. There's certainly, um, something much more around this Alistair Crowley mm-hmm. than, than at least would have first met the eye in, in the episode six. Maybe. So, um, certainly it could be a little bit of a plant who, who knows? I think um, we're supposed to get from Patricia that she just doesn't like to be treated as the babysitter, effectively. You know, she's a person who has as much power, I suppose, in her mind in the No Name League as uh, as this guy Thomas Wayne, who she doesn't know a huge amount about. Um, so kind of this idea of him knocking on the door and going, well, you're going to have to take care of my sister while I do some proper business. I think it kind of gets up her nose a bit. Yeah, and definitely. when they have that moment between the two of them, you know, as, as Patricia and Martha have that discussion where Martha says, well, I'm an ex-girlfriend and I kicked him to the curb and then suddenly the two of them are kind of friends because she goes nobody ever treats thomas like that nobody ever dumps thomas wayne the billionaire kind of thing so i kind of get the feeling that they created this relationship a little bit very quickly they fall into that kind of friendship all of a sudden and then nobody ever asked martha to go to go to a party you know she's been kind of holed up in her apartment for six months at least with alfred when he was holed up in his in his house his parents were taking care of him but trisha's in a foreign country and doesn't seem to have very many friends so if this girl comes over from from the US and goes, come on to a party with me. Maybe she just kind of felt a little bit lonely and felt like going along with uh, with Patricia to the party. Well, and look where she ended up as oh, a result. Yeah. Naked on Hampstead Heath. In a field. In I... a field. Absolutely. Roger uh, finishes off with, I think there's a possibility that the question, who shot Esme, might not be answered this season. Mm. In Gotham, Bruce didn't find out who killed his parents until quite a bit of season two had been aired. Mm -hmm. To me, that was a little disappointing, so I hope the answer to this mystery is much more satisfying. Absolutely. I think think there's a lot of intrigue around this, um, around Esme and her shooting, because she was on the screen for such... A short time and Alfred actually, you know, I was a little disappointed in Alfred about how potentially he was treating um, his fiance at the time, but also then it's to what end is she killed for? Is it, you know, is it simply this current story of Captain Curzon getting back at him for something seemingly quite trivial? Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's got to be more than that. Um, and I think we'll come to that a bit in, in, in this, uh, discussion of episode seven, but th- th- there's got to be a good old cliffhanger here. I think that is resolved. Um, to be honest, are around Esme, for sure. I think it's a very difficult thing when you set up a murder and who killed a character, you know. You can either set that up and that be the fundamental linchpin of a TV show. You know, we've seen that with many shows uh, in the past. And I think the way Bruno Heller and Danny Cannon conceived of Gotham was who killed Bruce Wayne's parents is this central case. And then as the show moved on and we got more episodes in a season and all that kind of stuff and they added in the villains and that kind of thing, suddenly it became oh, sugar, we've got to get back to explain who it was that killed the parents, you know? And it got to the end, towards the end of season two, and suddenly you had 44 episodes of a TV show explaining something that was traditionally explained in about 15 minutes of most of the films, who it is that actually killed the parents of Bruce Wayne. Um, so maybe it wasn't that satisfying, but I did see, and I'm not sure whether it's in a further p- bit of feedback that we've got coming up, but I did see this concept that perhaps the murder of Thomas and Martha Wayne could actually be connected to this time in their lives. Maybe they pissed off somebody in the Raven Society or the No Name League, and that led to their death 
20 or 30 years down the Absolutely. line, the plan comes out of that effectively. So you're wondering whether that's what the concept came from for Bruno Heller. So maybe it not, might not have been satisfying in Gotham to find out who the murderers were, but when you piece it together with this backstory from Pennyworth, maybe it's even more satisfying. Definitely. Which I think would be very cool. Yeah, really good. Our next bit of feedback came in from Charlotte Bain. She says, I listened twice to your podcast. Loved it. I am upset with Martha going to the party with Patricia. Now, how is she going to get out of being naked and get home? She knows Patricia had partying troubles and she is a stranger. I'm excited about hard work, Peggy, Bet, and the clan going into London. I am confused why the captain would kill es- Esme, though. Seriously, putting a note in his head for Alfred to find... It's like he wanted to make Alfred suffer, but to murder Esme. It's like a love-hate infatuation with Alfred. There's real-life stories about delusional stalkers. Now we have to wait, sadly, for a couple of weeks. Okay, hugs and have fun, guys. Uh, Thanks very much for that, Charlotte. Yeah, I'm really intrigued to find out a bit more about why the Captain Curzon would kill Esme. I'm sure it's going to be a big big point and a big moment. And I'm also wondering whether he is the one that killed Esme. Once again, we have this piecing together of this fractious kind of concept of who it was that killed Esme, but we're still not 100% sure. I think it's either a complete red herring Mm -hmm. on the part of John Ripper, or he is being asked to do this by John Ripper. So, yes, it's not that he wants to do it, he's being blackmailed or threatened in some way by John Ripper to do this work on his behalf. Um, So that that's kind of my take. I absolutely agree. I'm confused why this captain who really... You know, he did and he didn't appear in those flashbacks to any great extent. Yeah. You know, for me, it was more about Spanish um, and his bonding with Baza and Davy Boy. So I, I, I think it feels like um, a red herring to me. Right. Um, we're, we're supposed to think that maybe it is, but whether it's strong enough to carry that, um, because, it, yeah, as you say, it's the murder of Esme. I think we'll have to see. Absolutely. Um, I think it's a little more twisty-turny, uh, duplicitous, uh, potentially, here. And we definitely have some bits to talk about in this episode as well. Uh, John, do you want to take the final piece of, uh, of feedback? Yeah. Uh, our final bit of feedback also from our Facebook group, Terry Miller. Terry says, I haven't gotten up to episode six yet, but I have to commend you guys for this podcast, Keeping Pennyworth in the Air. I almost lost interest in the idea because there are so many other shows on and I didn't want another subscription. But you guys plugged along with this and I finally caught the pilot and I'm hooked. One thing, though, it's funny how you guys are a bit harder on the show than I am. I'll give all the episodes four or five stars up to now. I wonder if that's because I'm not invested in the Waynes and don't need to see more of them. Interesting. I don't like Bruce's dad and the actors who play them just seem stiffer to me. Are they American? It seems like the actors with British etc. accents are dancing rings around them. To my Oregon ear, they sound fake. Well, you have a good Oregon ear, Mm. uh, Terry Miller, because actually the two American actors are, in fact, British actors putting on an American accent. So, yes, um, it may and probably doesn't sound right to a native American speaker with uh, an American accent. And for me, I think they sound neutral, flat American. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I don't feel them particularly being bad. Um, but certainly, yes, they are, are not American. Yeah. And they're definitely we're certain about Ben Aldridge, um, who is definitely British, who plays, who plays the character, uh, in that. I know he's, he was in Fleabag, uh, on, on Amazon, uh, before. That's where I'd seen him before this show. I really like him as an actor personally. Uh, and I think what I was saying, certainly in the first couple of episodes was, 
the fish out of water idea of having Thomas Wayne involved in this British society, the no name league uh, early on in the show just felt really good. And, and having the idea of him and Alfred working together, it uh, just felt like a natural, a natural way to lead the show, having uh, this stiff upper lip British character of Alfred Pennyworth and Thomas Wayne, this billionaire American working together just felt like a perfect idea. Now throwing in the mix, Martha, Martha Kane as well, you know, really like what she brings to the show as well. But, um, I suppose if you're hearing them and you're hearing the voices in your ear and going, they're definitely not American. They're just putting this on. Maybe that's distracting you from a bit of that. Um, I will say probably the reason why we're not getting up to the four and five. And I know it, we have gotten one episode that was over four for, for John's ratings. There was one fundamental uh, issue that we had. That has now been resolved. I don't know where you are, but by, by now you probably have have gotten up to episode six. Uh, one of the major fundamental flaws that we found in the show early on was the relationship between Esme and Alfred. We didn't think it worked very well in the show, and it was kind of dragging the show down. But seeing how it's accomplished that, that storyline and how it's ended that storyline probably has worked quite well for us now. So starting to get into episodes that we're liking a bit more. Yeah, absolutely. I think as well, and, you know, I always feel because... Uh, Thomas Wayne is coming from a very rich family, you know, very, you know, upper, I suppose, upper class or higher echelons of society in America. I think the stiffness works a bit, mm-hmm. actually, uh, for me, but I do know what you mean. It, it, it's not kind of relaxed, chilled out in the same way. I think also it, it's back in the sixties, early sixties with a hint of the thirties in there. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, maybe. That, that, um, societal kind of hierarchies and so on still at play here with the Waynes. Um, dare I say it, maybe they're a bit waspy, uh, in, in how they are white Anglo-Saxon and Protestant. Mm-hmm. Um, who knows? Um, but certainly, um, I'm hoping that Martha, uh, frees him of that a little bit because I can yeah. see that she could do that. Um, for sure. And I've certainly liked some of the other episodes with them later on in the series as well. So I've really been enjoying the two of them, uh, overall. Yeah. Thanks, Terry. And thank you for sticking with Pennyworth, mm-hmm. uh, on the basis of, you know, at least maybe a few things that we have said. Yeah. Uh, it's really good to hear because yeah, this is a good little show. Yeah. And I think it's got, um, it's certainly got room to mature and, um, develop for sure. I do but kind I, of I feel it's a good start. Yeah, yeah. And I do kind of feel that Epics know that it's not going to be a show that's going to be widely watched because they're a new channel you know i do kind of get that feeling they're allowing the show to do things that it wouldn't do if it was on fox or even if it was on the cw you know uh it would it's doing things that wouldn't do over on those channels so uh so it's always intriguing when you've got a small a smaller kind of audience that you have to have to talk to i suppose Uh, thanks so much for all the feedback we'll continue to do this feedback section our royal mail section at the beginning of the episode so getting all your feedback about each of the episodes as you see them you can do it on our facebook group over on our email at feedback at tvpodcastindustries.com or join us on any of the any of the groups that we have out there or on twitter as well thank you very much fellow governors for the post bag there for our royal mail section Mm -hmm. Uh, on with the spoiler filled review of episode seven julie christie of Pennyworth. Yes, Derek, what are some of the episode details? I almost missed it. I had it written in the notes that, uh, that Bruno Heller wrote this episode. He did not write this episode. The episode was written by Seth Sinclair. This is the first episode of Pennyworth, the first season. Uh, first episode not written by Bruno Heller. Uh, I'm not seeing anything that Seth Sinclair has done in the past. I do like that he had, that he titled his, his short movie that he wrote back in 2016 as It's a Wonderful Knife. I think that's quite a good little title for a short movie. Yes. 
the wonderfulness of a knife. <laughs> it's for, a wonderful uh, knife. Yeah. yeah. So is that <laughs> serial killer version of uh, A Wonderful Life? Perhaps, perhaps, yes. Uh, definitely involved in lots of murders. Uh, now, looking forward to seeing a bit more from Seth and Claire in the future. Uh, the episode was directed by Claire Kilner, a British director who started out directing episodes of EastEnders all the way back in 1998. Uh, more recently, she has worked in the DC Universe and in the DC prequel universe, I suppose, as you'd probably call Pennyworth. Uh, she wrote episode eight of the final season of Krypton, which just got cancelled, unfortunately, uh, a couple of months ago. But uh, she worked on that final season and directed an episode towards the end of that show. Excellent stuff, yes. John, do you want to tell us what they gave us with your synopsis for the episode? Sure. While Lord Harwood and Peggy Sykes reconnect with the Raven Society and its interim leader, Francis Gaunt, Harwood promises her that a revolution is coming to England as he waits to reveal himself at the right time. Also lurking in the shadows is the Satanist... Alistair Crowley, who is confronted by Martha Kane and Thomas Wayne as they try to find Patricia and seek answers to Martha's party night and missing days. While Patricia is safe, Crowley wants Wayne's soul for his master. But whilst Thomas finds everything far-fetched, he will do anything for the return of Patricia and wants to meet Crowley's master. But after Thomas releases his inner demons on Jason Ripper and meeting the inner devil in a pale lamplit cellar, they are free to leave. Meanwhile, Alfred and the lads track down the identity of a wanted killer, and an unexpected team-up is on the cards for Alfred after Captain Curzon manages to give him and Bet Sykes the slip. I have a question for you, John. Have you ever danced with your inner devil in a pale lamplit cellar? Maybe once, but I think that was the time I woke up naked on Hampstead Heath. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I was trying to channel my inner Jack Nicholson there, but I can't, I can't do his accent at all. Oh well. <laughs> I do like it though. Nice, nice, uh, nice synopsis there. Some weird stuff going yeah, on in this episode. This, this went out there, to be honest, yeah. with the old Satanist idea and, uh, you know, an exchange for the soul. Interesting stuff. Yes. Yeah, but nothing more weird than seeing Jason Ripper in uh, in a pink dressing gown uh, being called Love by uh, Alistair Crowley. Like, the last time we saw him, effectively, he looked like a kid who was about to murder everybody in sight to try and take care of the landlord's daughter, just in case somebody laid their eyes on his girl kind of thing, even though she didn't want to be his girl, you know? So he's definitely changed um, over yeah. time. Jason Ripper's... Um Shall I say, his transformation has been the most shocking of all. Mm. And this is why I do feel that John Ripper is at the heart of all of this. Because there is part of me going, why is he not out of London like his uncle asked him to? You know, mm. to get him far away from the shame. I think the shame may be that this is how Jason Ripper is. He's a bit more servile than, um, you know, John Ripper would like. You know, he should be, as a Ripper, he should be the one leading. He should be the one ordering uh, or it is a plant here uh, and that the the hands of and the the tentacles of john ripper reach further into this world than maybe we are expected to believe we know he has a hand with udine uh, thwaite and now i just wonder whether that also extends to trying to manipulate and um, the no name league through thomas and martha wayne interesting yeah but we do see that ripper is also being called the angel of Aleister Crowley, which effectively would be a demon or a devil, right? Because Aleister Crowley is a Satan worshipper, so an angel exactly. to him 
is also a Satan or a devil as well. So potentially that's still right. Let's get into our questions for the episode. As we, as you know, on episode seven now, the way we're dealing with Pennyworth is lots of questions about the past of these characters. So we're going to go through all of the questions that came out through this episode. Question one for this episode, where was Patricia? Do we find a little bit of information about where she was? What's happened to her in this episode? Well, we, we kind of do really. We, we see her kind of coming down the stairs and into the room where Thomas uh, and Martha are, where they're asking or demanding from Crowley, uh, where is Patricia? Um, Jason Ripper goes to get her and she comes down and she's bright, breezy, clean, mm-hmm. um, looks well looked after, um, happy as Larry, to be honest, to, yeah. to be, um, in in the Crowley Satan residence, um, happiest she's ever been. Uh, loves to drink blood at lunchtime. Um, you know, red bit wine, of, John, bit red, of wine. red wine, bit of raw <laughs> flesh. You know, a bit of sous vide, a bit of uh, um, you know, bloody meat. Uh, she doesn't mind that. So I I don't know. It's it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because again, it's like to what extent should we be believing what's happening here? Mm-hmm. Because I I do feel this this whole thing around the Satanist. Is very much a Victorian thing as well. I, I think of Penny Dreadfuls and I, I think of that idea of the occult and so on yeah. and that romanticism of that through the Victorian uh, era. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this feels very much of that um, time period. Yeah. So Patricia, on the face of it, absolutely fine, um, doesn't want to leave um, her newly adopted sort of hotel or, or residence, <laughs> whether that means she's never going back to the US. Uh, but I have to say, the one thing I like from here, and I'm glad Martha says it, certainly given some of the uh, Royal Mail that we got back, I'm really glad that Martha really sticks up for herself here mm-hmm. um, and and tells Thomas, look, I'm not her um, babysitter at all. Absolutely. Um, I'm wondering where I've been, why I've lost three days of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is an adult. She can be wherever she wants. And I, I think this dynamic is brought out by Patricia herself with um, her conversation with Thomas uh, in, in the grounds of Crowley's house as well, where she says, you know, I'm an adult. I can do what the hell I want, yeah. um, really. And I, I think this is kind of interesting, to be honest, because, um, yeah, Thomas Wayne really does treat his, um, his sister with kid gloves a lot. Uh, and maybe it is just to protect the reputation mm-hmm. and the name of the Wayne family rather than his sister. But I like that that's called out here. Um, and I, I think the interesting thing is that both uh, Thomas Wayne and Martha Kane both come back to Crowley's house twice here. They're in the first time Thomas seemingly happy to allow Patricia to stay. And mm. then uh, they're back again because um, I suppose they get a feeling really. Well, very much it's coming from Martha. Martha specifically saying to Thomas, as as he described, the reason why he left his sister behind was she's happier than she's ever been in her life. And Martha goes, does that not concern you? That should concern you if she's never been happier with, this, with her life like this. And we know that this guy is an occultist, is a, is a Satanist. Got to be some issue there, right? Uh, we did mention in the last episode that the character of Alistair Carley is a true-to-life figure, an actual real-life 
uh, person who lived uh, only until 1947, uh, but he was a, an occultist up until then. Uh, so this would be something similar to what it would be expected, I suppose, from society from him as a, as a person. This is the kind of home that he would keep. Uh, the way he comes across in the show, the way they've written him here, I really like the idea that he's coming across as kind of a cult leader, you know? This whole thing of obviously, you know, I'm an adult, I can make my own choices. Well, loads of adults have made their own choices to join cults and end off like this thing where they think they're perfectly happy and they're doing things completely against their character, you know? Um, so that's effectively how it's coming across in this show. I do really like that. That's the way they're playing it with, with Crowley as this cult leader, effectively. So we don't know enough about him as to how he's controlling everybody. What we do know is we've seen Patricia in the past and we've certainly seen Ripper in the past, both being very different to the characters they are when under the influence of Alistair Crowley. Whether they're better or not, not really too sure, especially if he's saying, my master is Satan and they're telling people, come and join our little commune here. Commune here. Well, probably not a good thing. Yeah. Right? I mean, it is that cult leader um, and the indoctrination and the persuasion to bring them on board. So mm. I, I, I like that for sure. And I really do like Thomas Wayne's healthy skepticism of it. And even when Martha Kane is saying, no, his boss is the devil. Like yeah. she believes it after her experience to mm. some extent. She believes she saw this. She recognizes, though, that that may make us sound crazy. Yeah. But she's saying, I saw this stuff. How? I don't know. Is it in my mind? Maybe. However, there's something going on here. Mm-hmm. That's why she doesn't trust Crowley. Um, whereas I think Thomas Wayne's, whilst it's a, I said a healthy skepticism, maybe it's just a slightly more dismissive skepticism in that, you know, he's dismissing any kind of suggestion here. Uh, and the fact that other people believe it, like maybe Jason Ripper, like his sister, mm-hmm. that's the more dangerous element here, ultimately. As with any cult, it yeah. is the belief uh, around the story um of the cult members so much as anyone from outside. Yeah. And before we go on to the obviously big question from the episode of does the devil exist in this show and how, and everything that's going on in Pennyworth about the devil, just a quick aside, our question number two is actually a very small question just because it threw up to me what's going on with Martha. And this episode, we had kind of seen in previous episodes that Martha doesn't know a huge amount about Thomas. She's not really too sure much about him. In this episode, sitting opposite of uh, Alistair Crowley, while Thomas is off uh, in the other room, we hear her having this conversation with him, kind of going, you know, the Waynes as a family are bigger than anything you've ever dealt with. They're like their own country. They will they will step on you and they'll step on, on top of entire societies to get what they want. Um, we hear about Thomas saying, you know, it's not just to protect the family name, it's also to protect the FTSE 100 score or the uh, the stock market price for yeah. our family and our organization and Wayne Enterprises effectively. So it was just interesting to me that, that suddenly Martha has much more knowledge about the Wayne legacy and the Wayne organization here than she seemed to have in previous episodes. Yeah, I mean, she's much more knowledgeable about Wayne Enterprises or the, the corporation, less so about maybe Thomas. I think the other thing I think that's quite good here is that not only does Martha know a lot about the Waynes, but the devil or the master of Crowley, Crowley knows quite a lot about Thomas Wayne here and and knows that um, they're both with no name, but that there's a further level of secrecy for um, Thomas Wayne in that um, he is also with the CIA trying to undermine effectively both. And I I like this idea that, you know... um, he has this one-upmanship with regards to the knowledge that he holds um, 
even compared to Martha, uh, which makes for a really nice, uncomfortable scene between um, Martha and Thomas, where he's he is trying to squirm out of it, and I, I thought that was really nicely done. Absolutely, and they also make a very good point there of Patricia in the background going, no, you don't. You don't work for the CIA. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. Because you instantly think that he's just gotten the information from Patricia. Of course, you know, his sister knows that he works for the CIA and she's just handed over that information as she joined the cult effectively. But it seems like she didn't even know herself. So I like that they've done that in the background, that you, that you kind of get the idea that Patricia has no idea that this is the depths of her brother, the stuff that she, she wouldn't know anything about. She just assumes he's this accountant for uh, the Wayne Enterprises organization who follows her around the world, dragging her back from danger. Um, interestingly, remember, Remember back in episode one of the show when uh, Thomas went to save his sister effectively? She was also being chased down by other people, right? So um, so it's interesting that she does seem to attract a lot of negative attention. And now she's in league with these cultists as well. So, uh, so I kind of like that while he is saving his sister... I kind of like the idea of the Wayne family as a kind of almost like a royal uh, legacy, you know, like the old royals from the 1700s, where there's always one that that is uh, going against the whole family idea, and somebody has to shut yeah. them up and keep them quiet. You know, I kind of like she, that idea. She, she's that the Princess Patricia Margaret of, of her time. You well, know? maybe a little earlier than that. I'm thinking much more like you know the 1700s, where where a member of the royal family. Princess Margaret drinking was and pretty and rock and, and roll. Oh, she okay. was kind of. Um, yeah, the sixties princess, like the the shades and the the movie star husbands, mm-hmm. and you know, sniff sniff, uh, okay. snort snort. Don't know anything about recent. Lots of gins, probably. <laughs> but there you go. It was just a small aside, just about how much Martha seems to know about the Waynes and their legacy, and then how how little. Patricia seems to know about Thomas as well. Um, I also like the fact that Thomas himself is hiding that idea of him being in, in the CIA. I thought that was quite interesting. Um, but there's a great question there from uh, from Martha to to Thomas where she's going, how can you be so cold about your sister? And he kind of goes, well, practice and discipline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's exactly. one of my favorite little lines in there. Um, oh, yeah, and she also compares the Wayne legacy itself. I think Crowley says that he's been branded a thief by popes and kings, and here he is still surviving when they've all fallen away. And she then goes, well, you've never dealt with someone like the Wayne family before. Yeah, so that, that was a nice was moment, cool. actually, yeah. That was quite cool. Let's get back to the bigger questions of the episode. Question three, does the devil exist? Because this is kind of an interesting way they've dealt with it in the show. Uh, I was joking, I, I was uh, talking to someone on Twitter uh, a couple of weeks ago about uh, episode six when they introduced the magic element and when they introduced this Alistair Crowley, the occultist element uh, to the show. And they went, I'm out now. I've watched five episodes, really enjoyed those five episodes. And then suddenly they depended on occultism and magic. So therefore, I'm done with the show. And I was kind of going to them like, but you've watched five episodes of the show that you've really enjoyed. How can you suddenly be out when they bring in the occult? You don't want to wait and find out what they mean by the occult in this show. Is Does it exist? Does magic exist? And they just said, no, we're done, which I just find amazing. But what I love about this episode is even getting to the end of it and even with all the crazy, eerie, weird things that are going on, there's absolutely rational explanations. And they've also presented another side to it as well, that if you want to jump onto it and say the devil exists, they've provided something there. But effectively, what what has happened here, I think, uh, with what Crowley's done with Thomas Wayne is he said to him, the devil's inside of all of us and I'll find a way to get your devil out, even though you think of yourself as this button up uh, upper class American exactly. who can deal with everything. I will push your buttons all the way to get the devil inside out. Uh, if I was able to use any song uh, for the opening of the show without getting sued by anybody, it definitely would be in excess of devil inside. Uh, but that was my, my, yeah, my opening exactly. song. <laughs> it, it, it is that idea of 
that everyone has light and everyone has shadow. There, there is all of that. So I, I would definitely go with uh, Tippett's Child of Our Time here. Oh, nice. Uh, nice. As, well, at least part of the, the, um, final movements of, of that. But I, I think, um, yeah, I, I think that's what's really good here. I mean, Batman's always had to an extent. <clears throat> Something of the uh, occultist element here. You know, the Absolutely. court of owls is a cult. It, it's worshipping certain things. It might be technology. It might be the devil. Yeah. It could be like the League of Assassins. It is actual magic. It's yeah. it's a it's a magic whirlpool uh, and jacuzzi that brings you back, back to, to life. life ultimately, so, so it, it's not. It's not something that is um it is new to the Batverse, and mm-hmm. and it should be here i think here though as well there is that kind of magic there is magic shown to be or tricks Um, and you could say you know with the joker with batman himself it's that you're you're using technology and you see that here with um with crowley using the projector effectively to build the anger um and and the the venting of that anger in thomas wayne Mm -hmm. and so it becomes a little bit more existentialist as well where it's like well, that's what he means is that everyone has this devil inside them. Everyone has the ability to snap, to, to go bad, to go evil, or even just to passively join evil, uh, in some way. And, mm-hmm. and I can draw that out depending on who you are. And that's what he does here. Um, I like the fact though, as I said before, this to me feels really nice in this mixed up crazy world of, of Pennyworth where you have, you know, the title of the show is Julie Christie about an icon from the swinging sixties. This to me feels immensely Victorian. And, um, you know, I'm a massive fan of Penny Dreadful, uh, the show. And I right. think this really feels that Victorian um, element of uh, reconnecting with the occult and mm-hmm. um, with satanic co- uh, cultist movements from that period mm-hmm. uh, of which Alistair Crowley is part, you know, comes from that era. Mm-hmm. Um, to some extent, it, it, it is this, um, sort of rebellion against being the prim uh, and proper Victorian, which is always what it's assumed to be. This was the underbelly of that Victorian era, that, that rebellion against that in, you know, quite high social circles. So this really, fits nicely here into the Wayne world because I think um or Wayne's world, should I say. No. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> anyway, I will drop that joke. Um, that idea. wasn't very good. Um but it you know it, it features nicely I think with Wayne World uh, in that mm. um you know they are higher society. Yeah. Thomas does come across as a bit of a prude, a, a, you know, a bit sort of starched collar uh, to be honest. Mm. Um you know, he's very serious. He doesn't seem like he can uh, let his hair down. You have the opposite of that here with his sister, Patricia. Yeah. And it, that feels like she's confined by that starched uh, linen that she has to wear and she has to escape. And so what other way than it, you know, it, it's the equivalent of the, the kids were um, with their ghetto blasters in the eighties yeah. um, or, or whatever. Well, it's well, that rebellion. Yeah, absolutely. Like, remember, on both sides of the ocean, you had two big movements going on in the 60s. And in the UK, you had the swinging 60s, the free love era in, in the UK. But they were rebelling against the majority in society, the, the straight-laced 
stiff upper lip British effectively. And in the US, you had the other side. You had the hippies, um, who were a, another different movement to the swinging sixties movement. They were, they were similar, but they were doing two different things. You know, a lot of free drugs, a lot of free sex in the US in the sixties, you know, and again, they were rebelling against the stiff upper lip type. And I definitely, uh, Thomas Wayne is part of the stiff upper lip American side of society, you know? Um, it was only when you were speaking there that I noticed something as well that you mentioned, which is within the Batman mythos, I suppose, if you want to call it that. It's been around for 80 years. I guess you can call it a mythos, right? People do all the time. But you always have the leader of a gang surrounded by other members that will follow them to their to the nth degree. So we've always had things like Penguin and his gang of uh, of followers who are always fighting against Batman and, and his Bat family, effectively. So what they ha- are setting up within this show, in a very adult way, of course, what they're setting up within the show is always a leader and loads of followers who will buy into everything that the leader is telling them, effectively. You yeah. know? So so we have Crowley here with his two brand new followers who are willing to die for him, almost. You know, We see that they're definitely willing to do anything for him. The moment with Ripper lying on the ground, being choked to death almost by Thomas Wayne, is something that you would expect that Ripper would punch back or get himself out of there. But that's the level that Crowley knew Thomas Wayne was going to go to once he found the devil inside him, you know? Yeah, I thought that was a really great scene seeing Thomas Wayne lose his cool. Mm-hmm. And and as you say, it's that moment where Jason Ripper is like, what has happened to this guy? He he is literally accepting it because he knows that he trusts his, his his master, Crowley, who's maybe said he won't kill you, so he's just lying back. Or it's that if he does and he does die, he meets his master's master in the the purgatory that is his heaven, yeah. um, you know, and and goes to the promised land of hell uh, to to be reborn. Um, so this was really um, really good, and I, I must say I really liked how this was shot and seeing the the flashing images on Thomas Wayne's face and mm-hmm. him coming back all bloody and messed up and effectively saying, right, we're, we're going now, we're leaving and, and bringing Patricia because ultimately um, Crowley has gotten in this brief transaction, he's gotten what he wanted. He wants to know that Thomas Wayne has got this devil inside him yeah. and this anger. And he's seen that. And now he will allow Patricia to go, you know, in, in a sense that something's happened here that he's happy with. He's gotten what he wanted and now he's got to move yeah. to the next bit. So, and I think uh, it is, it's, it's, really Tom, it's Thomas revealing that he does have a dark side, even though he proclaims that he doesn't over and over again. He proclaims, I don't, I'm not a bad man. I don't have an evil side. Yeah. Yes. Crowley shows him that he does. And, and it's really interesting you say that because as well, you could argue that some of his views on his sister Patricia are pretty dark mm. and ruthless in that, well, I'm only doing this not really because I care about her, yeah. but because I don't want the Wayne stock market price to fall That's if right. she does anything stupid or the reputation. So he, in a sense, he's not doing anything seemingly out of love, but I'm sure there is that underneath some of this, but some of his explanation to Martha and to Crowley, yeah. um, is actually quite detached, quite cold, quite ruthless. You get the um, feeling yeah. that if he could cut Patricia loose from the family and it not affect the family name, that he would cut her loose from the family. Yeah. And we do wonder, we talked about it last episode before, um, about this idea of we've never heard Patricia Wayne before. You'd wonder if there was an aunt of Bruce Wayne, you would wonder why you hadn't heard of her. And maybe there is an explanation for that coming up uh, in the show. Uh, I do want to talk about the footage, the film that's being shown by Ripper to push Thomas Wayne over the edge. I do agree with you. I think it's a really powerful scene but i'm wondering is there just stuff in there that we 
couldn't see because it's being shown on his face. There's things that we couldn't make out. You know, I don't know whether it started out as being Martha Kane in that video because she didn't, didn't know what happened to herself for the first three days. And then the video ends with Ripper calling out that actually in that scene is his sister. So he's being shown a, a video of his sister, basically in a porn movie. Uh, and it's closing down with Ripper going, Oh, well, if you haven't had the opportunity to have sex with your own sister, maybe you should. Like that's a massively offensive thing to say to someone about their sister. Yeah, you know? And you can see why Thomas snaps completely at that moment and wants to kill Ripper as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, so he, you know, he is riled up here. So I, I think the devil, you know, literally speaking, doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. F- you know, figuratively, uh, with regards to that darkness inside, then absolutely. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it, it provides a nice character moment for Thomas Wayne, which I think really was needed. So I, I must say, I've been, I've been pleased about this. It, yeah. And it's really helped develop that relationship between Martha and Thomas. I don't think necessarily in a positive way so far. Yeah. You know, I think Martha feels completely and utterly lie to knowing or hearing the suggestion that he will be he's a member of the cia trying to undermine the no-name league i think his view on her as to what she should be doing she's a very strong woman Mm -hmm. she's like i'm not your babysitter i'm not patricia's babysitter yeah um you're adults and you're not believing what i'm saying yet this is what i felt i saw in that moment whether it was through drugs or alcohol or whatever yeah. or psychotropic so um I, I like this development for sure um and I, I like that it's not necessarily going in the right way which is it certainly looks like these two are far from marriage material Absolutely. as you could possibly think again is that one of the wondrous theories of this that actually it is an espionage cover in Gotham. No. Wayne Wayne Manor is their front. Wayne Enterprises is their vehicle. Hmm. Um, be interesting. It will be. I hope not. I hope that even if we only get a season one, that it won't trance all over that as its central concept. That that it turns out that Bruce's parents weren't connected uh, the way they the way they were when he was a young kid, uh, hopefully. But hey, we'll see how it goes. Uh, there's a couple more episodes to go this season. Let's get on to our fourth question of the episode. How will Harwood reveal himself? He will unbutton his coat and <laughs> sh- show himself to the world, just like the gremlin in the bar in the gremlin. <laughs> Either that or nah. he'll unbutton his coat and take out a biscuit that he's stolen from, <laughs> from Gaunt. Uh, I really like these scenes with uh, with Harwood because he looks like he's come back. We saw last episode that he kind of fell over when he was having thoughts of being fully back to himself. Uh, but he leaves Beth behind because she's a little bit um, too high profile, I suppose, to, be, to take to London. Uh, maybe a little bit too over protective of Harwood in case somebody says something slightly insulting she probably would kill them um, but he takes Peggy with her down to Gaunt's house to reveal that he is alive and well um, but not going to come out of the shadows until some kind of movements have happened so we have a, a discussion between these two leaders I suppose of uh, of the Raven Society uh, find a bit more about the Raven Society itself as well um, which is quite interesting in this episode as, as it's going on um, it does feel like Gaunt is very happy to see James Harwood. Uh, I don't think we had the, any of those moments where she kind of looks to camera and goes, Oh no, my whole plan has failed or yeah. anything like that. She tells him quite, in, quite quickly that she is not the one that, 
that ordered the death of Undine's husband, Justin. Um, she's not the one that ordered that death. So, but everybody seems to be complimenting her. So she's taking some of the compliments, I suppose, as, as the way that she's saying it. But she seems quite willing to step down as soon as Harwood wants to take over. Yeah, definitely. I, I think, um, I really like the meeting of Harwood and Gaunt. It's not how I, initially thought it was going to pan out actually i thought this was going to be a moment where uh, lord harwood kind of comes back and I, I thought it was going to be with the council of the raven society there mm-hmm. and he's going to go well this um this was a betrayal none of you stepped up none of you came to find me it was this um you know former sort of dog's body or servant of mine bet sykes who ultimately rescued me right um no one went out searching for me it was her and they've rehabilitated uh you know bet with um her sister uh so i i thought it was going to sort of be a bit confrontational i, I thought gaunt was probably going to die or if that if nothing else at least be uh, left sniveling, sort of knowing her place, right. that he was back. But instead, it's actually purred back here, where he's like, no, you still lead the Raven Society. I'm going to keep myself fully hidden until the, the plan needs to have me revealed. And this is for maximum effect, probably at the right time of when they're about to topple the government here. Mm. And so I, I kind of like this. I, I, I like the craziness of the Raven Society leadership. You know, uh, Frances Gaunt is, is slightly wacky. She's got a few quirks to herself. And here, I suppose Lord Harwood, after being on the streets and treated like a dog, um, he's stuffing jammy dodger biscuits uh, into his inside pocket for later, I presume. Yeah. But I thought that was really funny. Um, but I'm glad he didn't kill Frances Gaunt. I'm glad she's still there at the end. Um, you know, delivering that motivational, uh, revolutionary speech to the audience, you know? Yeah, but I think there's a lot more about the biscuits in the pockets that you're not taking into account. It's a funny little moment, yeah, but I think that's where Gaunt's realizing, ooh, maybe this guy is not the one we should all be the following. Full biscuit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> maybe he's not he's a full He's a jam boxer. short yeah. of a jammy dodger. Something like that. But I think the one thing you're missing about him taking the biscuits and putting in the pocket is the reaction of Gaunt to that. You know, when he arrived back, she goes, oh, great to see you. Um, maybe we should get you out of the country as quickly as possible so you stay alive because, you know, the government are after you, the prime minister tried to kill you. Maybe we can get you off to our friends over in the German, uh, over in the German camp, you know, the p- people that we're working with. Should we send them off there? Um, and then she sees him making this speech and saying, once I have, I'll, effectively, I'll crush Britain under my boot. Once we have the leadership, I will take my place in the light and I will come uh, to the forefront. And then she kind of has that moment where she's looking at him going, hmm. Not too sure whether you're a full packet of sandwiches there, mate. Um, you know, not yeah, really absolutely. too sure. So I think there's a little bit more there. Uh, we had, remember, we did talk about it before back in episode two, I think. Uh, there was a moment on the TV screens where we hear about the Germans and there is still a Reich ongoing, uh, potentially still Nazism ongoing. So if the Raven Society aligned themselves with the Nazis, uh, would make sense with the symbols that they've chosen for, for the Raven Society as well. Definitely. I mean, again, I think with Lord Harwood, and I think this does kind of lead into question five a bit. Um, it, it's a connective part to question four and question five. You know, how will Lord Harwood reveal himself? You, you're saying there that maybe he's a little, you know, off the edge. Mm-hmm. Um, and Francis doesn't fully, um, trust him because it seems like he's been damaged by his time, uh, at the hands of, uh, the, the, the barber and the torture that was put on him. And the prime but, minister and the queen, yeah, basically. The, yeah. But the thing is, he is still getting information from somewhere and mm-hmm. he still has some kind of network because we do have this moment where 
you know, back at um, the Sykes house, he's, you know, he's doing the toenails of Peggy in a nice pink, which again, could certainly confirm Francis Gaunt's uh, theory that he's slightly losing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he provides the information to Bet Sykes that he knows who uh, and were to get um, the killer of Esme, who yeah. is very much important. And he knows that she has an importance to Bet Sykes. So, you know, where's this information coming from? Um, you know, is it that he still has his channels or he's still got the the ear of maybe John Ripper because I don't think it's Francis and I think this leads us on to question five you know with what Bet does with that information with the information coming out of the Fusiliers Club for Alfred um you know where was Captain Curzon going all dolled up escaping from Alfred and his gun at least that is the first thing um, but what I like about this moment is I think it's really nicely shot, um, with the, you know, the misty streets of London. I like the chase across the rooftops, but I do like, even though it seems a little, um, unceremonious in some respects, I do like the fact that we have Alfred and, uh, Bet Sykes in the same location. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just wondering, is this some kind of weird team up? That is probably going to happen here. Absolutely. Um, with the two of them trying to track down, uh, Esme's killer because of how much she meant to the both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought this was really nicely done. I, I liked, um, you know, uh, Baza and, uh, Davy Boy as well, helping Alfred, uh, you know, to find out this information about Captain Curzon, what's he doing? Going to the Fusiliers Club, to you know the 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 officers' club, to to find out if they know anything about Curzon. And I like that it all ultimately trickled down into this meeting of both uh, Bet Sykes and Alfred Pennyworth. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Curzon manages to escape, but I do. I I think Davy Boy has. Um, has says it all actually. I think it's kind of one of those things hidden in plain sight a bit where, um, all you did was make a joke. So why is he taking, uh, this vengeance to the extreme of killing Esme to get back at you? And now Alfred says the joke is on me. And okay, maybe it is, but I think Davy Boy has a point here. And this is why I'm still fairly, uh, and I think this is still why I'm firmly of the view that this is Curzon being used mm-hmm. or being manipulated um, or something else. And that someone else is is behind all of this and indeed Esme's death. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you. Now, I think we hear from the cleaner that she comes over to clean up the house two days a week. She doesn't go into any room other than the main reception area, effectively. And he just dresses up in his gear and goes out to the Fusiliers Club. Um so it doesn't seem like he has much of a life. doesn't seem like he has much of a job or anything like that. So perhaps he's been paid off by somebody to kill Esme. And, and that's why uh, he doesn't seem to have anything else going on. Uh, the fact that he's hiding out in what looks like some form of um of hospital for former veterans is what it seems like. The, yeah, the, the arms houses. It's kind of like charity. It, it's when the Queen, you have arms day where the Queen mm-hmm. gives arms, A-L. 
MS rather than yep. ARMS, even yep. though it does sound the same. No, she doesn't um, give bombs to poor people. No, no, where the, it's a symbolic kind of purse of money that mm-hmm. the uh, royalty used to give out in church, and and so the alms housing is kind of it's the um, I suppose the the give back from the army to its soldiers yeah. and and officers where maybe they have been um, injured, or injured uh, in action or fallen on bad times uh, to some extent. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it, it does. It feels like he is a pawn in this um, in this game of chess and he's being used. It's a question of who is he being used by. And I, again, um, I am still backing the theory of John Ripper and the No Name League. Well, I think, you know, the fact that the question that was asked of Alfred Pennyworth in the past was, who would do this to you? Who would be, who would hate you this much that they'd want to do something this bad to you effectively? So either Alfred's misremembering what he did to his, to Captain Curzon earlier on in, in his time in, in the war. Um, potentially that, that's something as well. There's possible, possibility that things have gone missing from Alfred's memory. Or it is somebody else that's using this very tenuous connection between the two. And this is the only thing that Alfred could think of is that time that he slagged him off in front of his, his company and embarrassed him in front of his company. So there's, there's one of those two things. It's, it ha- has to be that, right? Uh, but we feel, or I feel definitely the fact that they keep underlining it was only a joke or it was only that one time that you said something. Nobody else really even remembers it. I wouldn't think of Captain Curzon in a bad way at all just because of that one little joke that you made kind of thing. So because they keep underlining it, that makes me think you're right, John, that, that, He's been paid off to kill Esme on behalf of somebody else. That will be a big reveal in the future. So, uh, so intriguing. I do like the little touch that uh, they find the uh, engagement ring of Esme yeah, that was as, nice. a, as a medal on his uniform. I think that's a really good touch. Um, I also love the conversation between Alfred and his mom and dad because they haven't been able to get through to Alfred for a few weeks at this stage. And finally, we get that moment of how butlering can help out <laughs> effectively. This is how you reshine a, a diamond on, a, on an engagement ring. I've done it for uh, many people in the past. Trust me, you know. Yeah, I, I thought that was really nice with the Lady Faltingrass uh, use uh, by his dad mm. to to polish up her diamond. Um, and I, I think, uh, yeah, whilst Alfred's cleaning the ring of Esme, mm-hmm. um, I thought that was, um, I thought that was really nice. And I was there going, yeah, I'm really starting to like his <laughs> mum and dad here. They're really nice. And then what do we mm. see? Only, uh, his dad at, uh, the fascist right wingers Raven Society, uh, sort of, inspirational speech from Frances Gaunt. Well, yes, where she says that foreigners aren't our friends, they will be expelled from our country, sexual deviants will be killed, and thieves will be hanged. You know, this is a totally Nazi-ish speech coming from the Raven Society. We haven't really heard much about their beliefs in the past, just a very simple that one's fascist and the other one's communist, effectively. Uh, that's all we've really heard about the details. But once you get a big speech, a rallying point, and she's making these kind of sta- statements, and saying potentially that the Germans will take in Harwood, you're kind of going, oh, this is the Nazi League or the Nazi Society in the UK is actually the Raven Society. You know, that's, that's what we're getting here. It's a much more, yeah. much more, um, oppressive group than you would have seen in the past. So, uh, so an interesting one to end off. Obviously, massively interesting that, that Alfred's father is in that group. Definitely. And Alfred is very much closer to the No Name Society in 
the dealings he's had in the past with Martha and with uh, with Thomas Wayne as well. So uh, so it, potentially this could be dividing an entire household, but dividing the Pennyworth household between the two societies. Yeah, so, it'd be uh, interesting yeah. how it uh, plays out for sure. Yeah. That's it for our top five questions from the episode. A couple of things just just that stood out in this particular episode. Love that overhead shot at the beginning of the episode as Martha's returning home. Fantastic. During, yeah. uh, during rush hour, during the rat race, effectively. All the men going off to work as Martha, wrapped in a sheet, is walking back through them back yeah, to her Yeah, really home. nicely done. And that was really Loved cool. that, yeah. Uh, also, the scarecrows on the way to Dr. Gaunt's house, we pointed out the scarecrows before that the production designers at, at Coast FX, who did the visual effects for the show, were specifically saying that the reason why they chose scarecrows in the fields, the way that they chose them and the style that they chose was because of the Batman villain scarecrow. Uh, you can definitely see that in the two or three scarecrows on the way to Gaunt's house. They definitely look very like a scarecrow from, yeah. from Gotham. And, and also the hallucination at uh, Crowley's house. Mm-hmm. You know, you could have this idea, it's some kind of prototype gas that's filtered into the room, not just simply hallucinogenic drugs. A little fear gas. Yes. Potentially. Uh, speaking of Crowley's house, I know I had to point this one out to you when we watched yes. the episode a second and time. And then I John. saw it. Uh, once again, the uh, a pram with pigs going by uh, in, in the foreground. What as, is going on? Uh, as Martha and Thomas return to the house, the second time they're going back, in case you want to find it, the pigs going past in a pram. Uh, so it's the second one we saw the, the mask <laughs> of someone uh, wearing a pig mask uh, in, in a previous episode. Uh, and this time we see pigs going by in a pram. Yes. What the piggy wiggy is going on here? Um, there is certainly a pig theme. There is. Uh, for sure going on. I have to say, that moment was weird for me. And not just purely because of the pigs in a pram. Mm-hmm. But it was the fact that when Martha says she's going after Patricia... They kind of go straight up to the front door and ring the front doorbell. I thought they were going to kind of like sneak in the back door <laughs> or sneak in maybe a window on the first or second right. floor or, or whatever to try and, you know, kind of surreptitiously rescue her and bring her out <laughs> rather than kind of confront Crowley. Still um, polite society, John. Always yeah. ring the front door. <laughs> so it, it seemed a little on the front door to me. Um, but certainly then, yeah, pigs in a pram. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it's Crowley's house. Who knows what happened to those pigs? Well, uh, maybe for his next kind of seance. How else are you going to carry your pigs around uh, around London, you know? I'm sure George Clooney has, with, with his pot-bellied pigs, he probably has a pram for them as well. Well, yeah. Pot-bellied pig pram is a very difficult thing to say. Pot-bellied that, pig pram. We absolutely. will definitely leave it there. John, how would you rate this episode of Pennyworth? I would give this episode four pigs in a pram out of five. It has to be pigs in a pram mm-hmm. because it was the weirdest part of this. Um, <laughs> it certainly was. For me, I really liked um, Thomas and Martha sort of interacting here. Uh, and through, through the vehicle of Crowley and Patricia... Um, I, I thought it was nicely done. Um, you know, actually, Alfred took a, a relative back seat, really, in the, in this episode. But however, I liked how they chugged that along. And certainly with uh, the meeting of Bet Sykes and, um, and Alfred, I thought it was a little unceremonious. I thought, like, he would maybe have a bit more of a surprise given, um, you know, their previous meeting. But it all seemed a little matter of fact and Oh, we'll all help one another to, um, you know, get the guy who killed Esme. Um, well, he does go. He does go. Uh, you're you're dead, aren't you? Well, like, exactly. No, I'm not. But, I'm no, it, it does. <laughs> I don't know whether there was more of a punch or a packing of a punch that I was expecting mm. there. But I like the fact that that happened. Um, I love that chase scene over the roof, through the That's windows, cool. uh, in the misty streets of London. I thought that was nicely done. 
um, the old disappear by bus trick. Um, you know, did he catch the bus? Did he hang on to the outside? Did he get on board? Did he go down a manhole cover? Did he climb through a window? Who knows? And I was thinking about this because remember, buses back in the sixties were very different to the way they were when but we were when we were on. young. You could just hop on the back because yeah. they had the bar hanging off and an open door at the back which yeah. is different now. Obviously, the bus has to stop and the doors have to open, but you absolutely could have jumped onto the bus, definitely. Yeah. So um, should point that out. <laughs> so I, I really liked uh, all, all of this and how it played out. I, I think there's more um, to know about Crowley mm. and what's happening. And, and I think that... I felt some of that was just missing a bit from, from this episode. But um, I like that we saw Thomas and Martha Wayne's uh, relationship develop and in some ways not in a good way. I know true. Um, so I, I thought this was good. And yes, that opening shot of her walking uh, against the tide of, of maildom, uh, I thought was really, really good. Yeah. Her in the white sheet and, um, you know, a few faces turning. I thought the overhead and from uh, down below where you have the, the factory scenes. I thought there was really, really um, some nice direction here. So mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, really like this episode. Uh, a little investigative, a little procedural in parts, but I, I thought it was nicely done. And of course, uh, who doesn't like an episode that chucks pigs in a pram <laughs> for no reason? Or is fun. there a reason? There might, there is might there? be. There might be. I, I'm wondering if we're going to see a bit more of Jack Ripper in the future as well, because I feel like his change of character is so massive from what we saw of him in episode two. We've only got three episodes left of the season. I'm hoping that we're going to see why did he change? You know, what yeah. is what is the reason he's here? After what happened to him in episode two in Landlord's Daughter, I was kind of expecting a big standoff when he returned to London, but seeing that he's back here and just kind of living the party lifestyle, being called my angel by Alistair Crowley just seems so odd and out there. Almost as odd as pigs in a pram. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Pettyworth Podcast, episode seven, Julie Christie. We'll be back next Monday with our review of episode eight entitled Sandy Shaw. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast over on tvpodcastindustries.com. We're currently talking about the boys as well. We have episodes of the boys coming out every week on Wednesday. Um, but Pennyworth comes out on Monday every week as we get through the rest of the season. Yeah. Thank you so much, governors, for listening. As always, it has been a pleasure. I'm off to go and get some bacon, because yes, uh, pigs in a pram got me thinking of bacon butties, and uh, certainly the old mouth started to water. So, oink, oink, uh, speak with you again soon. Bye. Bye. <laughs>